You're listening to Tove, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, this is John Spiracevet, and I'm here with Leah Jones. Hey, Leah. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Once again, meeting someone for the first time because yes. of the good place. It is one of the true wonders of the internet and podcasting are getting to talk to strangers. <laughs> well, hopefully we won't be strangers for very long after talking about funny and deep topics. Yes. What do you do in the Jewish world in a sentence or two? I am the immediate past president of Emanuel Congregation in Chicago, Illinois, which is a 142-year-old Reformed congregation. Just for our listeners who may not know what a synagogue president is, what are the duties of that? So you chair the board, the people who have the fiscal responsibility for the synagogue. You're the top lay leader for one to eight years, depending on your synagogue. And you're a podcaster, which I which I know, and I would know, especially because for one thing, your audio sounds smashing. <laughs> and on screen here on Zoom, your, your microphone is suspended from a, a thing, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to mine, which is standing on a stand. But uh, tell us about your podcasts. So I have two podcasts, both of which are COVID hobbies. The first is called Finding Favorites, where I interview people about their favorite things, how they found it, why they love it, why they think other people should love it. And that's really fun because people tend to get asked about their careers and about their romance, like their love stories. But you don't always get an hour to just go deep on a hobby or, or info dump about a band. So I give people the opportunity to just go deep on something for an hour. And then my second podcast is called Candy Chat Chicago, which was a spinoff of Finding Favorites. And it is with my co-host, Jocelyn Gayboy. And we just say, come for the candy, stay for the chat. We try new candies. We talk about them, but we also just talk about what's happening in our life and the world. So those are our two podcasts, Finding Favorites, Candy Chat Chicago. And they will be linked in the show notes and we'll get them you. Out on our social media too. So if you were going to introduce yourself by explaining which of the Good Place characters you're feeling most like, who would that be? I would love to be a cheaty because he's so, you know, when I think about like how I am in the Jewish world, I would aspire to have Cheaty's access to books and like he's just so well educated and also it's all on the tip of his tongue. So that is aspirational, but I'm probably a little bit more, especially during COVID, a little bit more Eleanor, not in the bad behavior, but just in the like <laughs> margarita mix, uh, junk food, lying on the couch watching TV, that part of Eleanor, I'm probably embraced too much of that during COVID. <laughs> So what's your origin story for The Good Place? Boy, I think I started watching it episode one, season one, when it was on TV. We talked off before we hit record about West Wing Weekly, which was my origin story podcast. And so I started listening to West Wing Weekly, and then I got into other recap podcasts. And, and that kind of really elevated my TV viewing experience because I became more aware of, oh, Mike Shore from Brooklyn Nine-One-Nine from the office. And, and so I think I had heard, I'd become familiar with him through podcasts. And so when The Good Place came out, I made an effort to watch it. 
So I was in that first season, week to week, totally sucked in and shocked by the outcome. <laughs> <laughs> so you just started, you went and you went straight through from there? Yeah. Yeah. So we're here to talk about Chapter 22, Leap to Faith. And Leah, you want to give us the summary of the episode? Sure thing. Sean, the demon, the boss demon comes back and congratulates Michael on the success of the experiment and promotes him to senior staff, which is when he gets his thumbs down pen. Michael then reveals to Chidi, Eleanor, Tahani, and Jason that they are in the bad place. And Sean informs them that the neighborhood will be shut down and the humans will be transferred to the traditional section of the bad place to be tortured. Janet has been disabled. She's been restrained with magnetic handcuffs. And then the humans are trying to figure out what to do next. But Eleanor insists that Michael is still on their side based on his name dropping of Kierkegaard, who is known for the leap to faith. Michael calls a neighborhood assembly to roast the humans, before the demons trash the neighborhood in a drunken rave. I do have to say, re-watching this, Grandma <laughs> Got Run Over by a Reindeer being played multiple times in this episode was perfection for me. <laughs> that the drunken rave included things from Dr. Demento. <laughs> the next morning, Vicky, who has been Michael's nemesis, is about to tell Sean about the reboots before Michael points out that the humans are escaping on a train and gets Vicky implicated for the deed. A second train leaves carrying Sean and the rest of the demons, revealing all four humans and Janet are on the tracks. Eleanor explains that they pieced together Michael's message to use Derek to drive an empty train to the medium place at the end of the party and hide under the tracks to avoid detection from clues in the roast. With the demons gone, the team realizes they're free to make a break for the good place. Mm. Well, I have to say, this was this was not one of my favorite episodes. And a couple, no, well, no, actually, I love that. I would say the two that lead into it and the couple that come after it. Really, the rest of the season, I do love. I love them conceptually. I love them comedically. There was some funny stuff here, mm -hmm. and um, I, I adore Sean and anything that Janet does. The mag, the magnets, mm -hmm. and, and all of that. Uh, yeah, I'm hoping you're going to help me love this episode more. <laughs> Gosh, I I did love this episode. One, I am a huge Jason Manzukas fan. Mm. So anytime Derek shows up, I am thrilled. So I do appreciate that he's not a Chekhov's gun. They put him in the void in the episode before, but they use him in this episode because he's uh, sort of a Janet. <laughs> he Wait, can so do some things. You said Chekhov, well, I assume it means the famous player. Chekhov's, yes. can you explain that to me? Chekhov's gun yeah. <laughs> is, if you show a gun in the first act of a play, you have to use it in the second act. Mm -hmm. So knowing that Derek is available to them at the end of the, the episode, Derek, maybe Chekhov's gun is the wrong thing, but they're, they're using their resources. So I appreciate that. And I like this episode because it feels like this is where you really are. You like a cheaty adjacent did you so what did you think that Michael had double crossed them or did you think he was actually where did where did you land on oh, where Michael you're asking was me, you're asking yeah me. oh wow oh I can't remember from the first time I watched I can't remember uh and the last bunch of times I've been watching this season a couple times lately so I know where I'm going and I can't I can't recreate that but I think that um I would have assumed probably 
given all that's going on, I would have assumed that Eleanor was right. I think that's, yeah. um, if I had to do the time machine of my own head, I think that's probably what's there. Yeah. How about you? So I, I, I am bad at mysteries. <laughs> so I did not know they were in the bad place in season one. I did not catch any of those. I did not either. I, you know, yeah. so I just go along. As su- I'm probably adjacent. <laughs> like I'm probably... <laughs> I I was like, oh, he double-crossed him. I guess that's a thing a demon would do. And I wanted him not to have lied to them, but I, I kind of felt like that he had, I think. Why did What did Jason say? Why do the people who who you... Who, most expect of <laughs> double-crossing you the do that? You ex- <laughs> why do the people who double-cross you are the ones you most res- expect yeah. you? <laughs> yes. Um. But I think what I I love about this is that I think because I am bad at mysteries, when at the end, because the roast is so mean, it is cringeworthy. That I think was my big problem with the episode. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That it is straight. It cuts straight to the heart of every one of them. It is so painful and hurtful. So, yeah, I don't. The comedy of that is so uncomfortable. But when they then go back and they pick out the clues or the new things or the ways that that Michael said things to them that he had never said before and wouldn't necessarily know, I felt like I, I thought it was good c- clue reveals for me as a somebody who's bad at mysteries. Yes, I always wonder, and you know, you were talking about the West Wing Weekly, my. And I keep saying on this podcast that I'm not going to like refer to other fictional universes, and then I do anyway. But I, it's one of my <laughs> things about Aaron Sorkin is that he would like sometimes let you try to figure something out, but sometimes he'd explain a joke to you like a little, a little too. Well. Yeah. But actually, yes, that redeemed the roast for me <laughs> a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Although it was very like it looked to me like oh, if I was writing a comedy show, I would really want to explain to everybody. So I mm-hmm. loved when Michael said that actually I left you 1,200 clues, but I'm glad you got yes. the ones. <laughs> Yes, I, I'm glad you caught the four. I left you 1,200 for your primitive brain. Yeah. I also love that they're finally taking care of Mindy Sinclair. Right? When they sent her Derek with two duffel bags of cocaine and wind chimes instead of private parts, that after all the times that they have gone to her house and hidden there and taken advantage of her, that they are finally remember her and take care of her. Like, I also appreciate that as a payoff. And that, I would, if I, if I were Jason, I would say that's like Chekhov's gun. Yes. <laughs> yes. See, I learned something. I have heard. There you go. <laughs> I was thinking that for the purposes of this podcast, which is framed about the idea of teshuvah, of, of going back personally over your life and mm-hmm. changing in light of that, this this one is hard to make stuff out of because that inner work and even that philosophical work isn't really being done in this episode. So I am uh, very much hoping you're going to lead us to a place that picks up on that and, and yeah. pulls out what's there for this episode. So I have kind of I've got two big ideas I'll share them both with you briefly and you pick the direction (laughs) how's that sure so one is I was thinking about leap into faith and I am someone who converted to Judaism and one of the things that stuck with me when I was early in my studies of Judaism was the idea that do that you may learn so na'aseh venishma 
and for me, when I was thinking about Kierkegaard leap into faith and that Judaism is not a religion of faith, it's a religion of action. And ultimately they take action in this episode. And it's not because they believe Michael, it's it, they're taking actions and that they hope that it will turn out okay. So that is one for me is, is this action oriented Judaism. And that connects for me to leap into faith, which is that you're going to do the actions that the Torah prescribes and that our tradition prescribes. And then if you believe in God along the way, or you do, if you, if you, if you get to right thinking through right acting, well, at least you did the right acting. Mm. So that's one. And the second one is simply when Michael says, I left you 1200 clues for your primitive brains. To me, that is how when you're studying Judaism, you spiral bigger and bigger. Like we come to the Torah every year. If, if you're studying and you're getting access to more texts and you're learning to study more deeply, as you grow in your Jewish life, you know, like you start with the Torah, then you add Mishnah, and maybe you get to some Talmud study. But the tradition of the Talmud is rabbis talking to each other through the ages to us in modernity. So to me, like is the Torah the four clues for our primitive brain, and the Talmud is the 1200 that we were left? Whoa. How's that? That's awesome. Oh, I've got to think about that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's playing some multi-dimensional uh, divine chess there. Yeah. Wow. And wow, very and Kabbalistic, I think almost in what you're saying. I'm just phenomenal. There, I, I agree with you. Like, it, there's not a clear. Oh, this one reminds me of this parsha. You mean like a specific weekly Torah reading? Yeah. You know, there's not a parsha where I don't think there's one where you show up with like bribes and drugs and and sex workers. I could be wrong. Hmm. But the idea that there are so many ways of understanding Judaism and understanding our tradition, depending on your age, depending on your access, that's where that's where I got to. So now I should ask you, do you know anything about Kierkegaard? No. Okay, well, all right, so both, but that's good. So I think that's really appropriate for a show about a comedy as two. We, we don't, and I, yeah. <laughs> I think that I, it's, I've read a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, I opened up a like academic.logos.com on Kierkegaard's Leap of Faith. And I was like, well, I have not had enough coffee yet today. <laughs> so no, I don't know Kierkegaard. My undergrad was in chemistry. <laughs> Couldn't be further from my capabilities. I think we should be this seems to suit us maybe to be we could be writers on the TV shows. And yes, uh, unlike well, since you were the congregational president, and you, you probably have a, a look, as you say, at the the sausage being made as a rabbi, I will, <laughs> I will sometimes learn something, you know, quickly to that seems to be connected to what I want to some theme I want to talk about and quickly become an expert in something and mm -hmm. so psychology or chemistry or Kierkegaard for a week while, while presenting right. a, a Devar Jara, a sermon. Um, so well, the one thing I will say about wh where you started was in terms of the, the acting into doing is that it seems like the the one piece of change that happens well the two the the two I guess one is Eleanor uh, and she says like when I like she's a person whose life on earth was built on 
both not trusting people, constantly uh-huh. being disappointed by her parents and other people, and really leaning into being not trustworthy. That seemed to be in mm-hmm. season one. I think we were treated to everything from the the dog sitting to the oh, uh, you know yeah. all, that kind of, all that kind of stuff. And then she says, "At one time, I decide to trust someone. It seems like I shouldn't." So there is that, but she commits to that view of Michael, she starts looking for the clues that he leaves her. And the others who aren't invested in that in that leap, I guess they don't see him. Right. So that's, a, I don't know if that's just a result of what's come out previously. There's no catalyst for that here. I'm trying to think of where, well, she does reference the conversation she had at the end of the last episode where she kind of sat down and really talked about with Michael, ethics is hard. I did rewatch the Derek episode before I rewatched this episode to just get myself back into the swing of it. And she's like, oh, you you really did just stop by to chat. Because she's not someone in her life who had swing by and chat friends. She had very shallow relationships. And so I think as she's realizing she's having deepening relationships, including with Michael, and that it's Jason insisting, how is it possible that Michael couldn't remember Derek Bortles? Jarek, Jarek Bortles. Jared Bortles. Blake Bortles. Bortles. (laughs) (laughs) And that that is something that they're like, of course he wouldn't get it wrong. And, And that's what opens the door to her realizing there had to be clues. Oh, because he says Derek Bortles. Mm-hmm. And Derek is who they need to get to drive the train. So the thing I feel like I do know about Kierkegaard is that the leap to faith was actually sometimes connected to not acting ethically or not feeling like you had a good ethical explanation. And so the one piece of Kierkegaard I think I have read is a story about the the binding of Isaac in, mm-hmm. in Genesis, where Abraham, Abraham, is confronted with this seeming command from the divine to sacrifice his son. And which we all know from every ethical standpoint is wrong, and yet he seems in some sense to be willing to go ahead and do it. And I know Kierkegaard says, there's, like, uh, we don't understand, but sometimes there seems to be this leap you have to take. And now, now I don't think this is Kierkegaard, but I didn't study enough Kierkegaard. That, that like when we're sort of working off our own ethical sense, then we're not really serving something outside of ourselves where ultimately it might be mm-hmm. a good part of ourselves. We're just like trusting ourselves and that's not trusting the divine. That's turning back to ourselves. And now that doesn't make, I, I understand that what a leap to faith is under that circumstance, but it's horrifying to me. And yeah. In this case, I think the leap to faith is like, it is the only way there's no logical, like the odds are that Tahani and Chidi are right. Right. And, and it happens that Eleanor is right. And this is, perplexing. But I don't know, the leap to faith seems like it would be something other than, oh, she's Michael's friend, so she understands Michael and would sort of figure him out better than other people would. That would be less of a leap to faith. So I'm, I'm struggling to try to put that leap, mm-hmm. that leap thing is a leap. It's like I can see maybe a leap of logic or uh, gives yeah. some of the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Something you said there, again, it's not, it's not Kierkegaard, but you talked about like when you're trying to make decisions based on your own feelings and not the divine. When I first came to Judaism, there were some things that I asked my rabbi, I was like, how do I make a decision about X, Y, Z? Because I've only made a decision based on how I feel. Because I was raised secular Christian, which I used to call nothing. And then after I became Jewish, I realized that nothing in America is in fact secular Christianity. Uh And I was like, how do you make decisions from a Jewish framework. And in that situation, we were talking about relationships, romantic relationships and moving ahead with uh, a relationship. And 
and we were talking about Martin Buber's I and Thou and just learning how one of the things I appreciate about Judaism is that you do have this structure and a scaffolding for making decisions. Mm. I was in the Chicago 17 class of Wexner Heritage Fellows, which gave me two years of getting to learn with Jewish educators and, and rabbis and learning how to apply Judaism, Jewish theology, Jewish decision making to my volunteer life as a Jewish lay leader. And instead of making decisions based on feelings, making decisions based on the, the actual framework of our people. I, I like what you're doing here by, by saying, like, where's the teshuva? What, what can we learn from these episodes? Because it is interesting that it's all based in ethical philosophy, and which obviously a lot of them are Christian adjacent, not Plato and, and uh, Socrates. But I think there's something interesting there about that the things they're learning are, are, are more humanist. They're not a particular religion. It's interesting because they've all been taking this philosophy seminar with Chi, mm -hmm. and that was their bargain with Michael at the beginning of the season. But it seems like even Chidi doesn't arrive at the same place based on even having taught them right. about Kierkegaard. But Eleanor has been affected by it, and Michael's been affected by it. So they each, I guess we haven't talked about that. Michael had to make a decision in this moment too. this everything. There was this lovely moment at the beginning of it's every, like, this is everything you've wanted when Sean, mm -hmm. and then he's like, it's everything I've wanted. And then he's like, maybe that's where I got the clue. It's everything I've wanted. And, um, and that comes back at the end too, because when I, is it Tahani who says, you know, now we've gotten everything we've wanted or one of them in that conversation, mm -hmm. we could go to the, we could try to go to the good place and you have a sense of well, maybe everything they've wanted is what they're questioning. Right. Now. So you were talking about the Wexner studies giving you a, a frame. And I assume that you didn't mean it gives giving you a, a guidebook of, you know, Jewish law or halakha, you know, this is how I do this, but it gives no. you a sense, cultivating some kind of sensibility. How do you experience that in Judaism? When do you I've, know that you're using it to make a decision? When I was first, first studying Judaism, the first wisp of it, I was working somewhere where my paychecks regularly bounced. And I learned somehow pretty early on that you should never make, nobody should ever ask twice for a paycheck. Like you should pay people fairly, that there's a lot of labor rights built into Judaism. So that is something where I now have a very held strong value that people should never have to ask twice to be paid. A check should never bounce. It should never be hard for somebody to be compensated. Mm. And that that is something I value. Some things are easier to integrate. And sometimes the bigger questions, what the Wexner Fellowship offered us was not the GPS to guide us to the right answer, but the map helping us understand how Torah, Mishnah, Talmud responses, like how do, how do all the texts build on each other? And how do, how do you even start to find an answer? And how do you start to explore, how do you build some of the facility to explore the texts to come to some possible answers? Mm -hmm. Some training on, on how to do the exploration to get to an answer. So you were blown my mind earlier with this idea based on Michael's, I left you 12,000 clues, whatever mm -hmm. it was, 12,000, 1,200. I left you 1,200 clues for your primitive brains. I'm glad you found the four. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> Thank you. It should have said five for five books of Moses. But, mm-hmm. you know, we can't have everything. I was thinking that in a world where there are 1,200 clues, you wouldn't be thinking so hard. And in a world where you only pick up a few, you do have to really concentrate. Mm-hmm. So I guess Eleanor and Michael map out the pieces of the deduction process. Right. And, and it, is, it is interesting. I mean, you would think, again, that Chidi's the, maybe not the logic guy, but at least the thinker guy. But Eleanor's the one who really works hard to piece it together. She yeah. said, there must be clues here and I've got to find them. But um, And I like this where, where he, I think, if I remember right, Michael, in that narrative where they reconstruct how it went, they collaborate a little bit. You know, once when she gets that train, so to speak, rolling, yes. Michael kind of, like, yeah. Tell me what Michael said in the roast that he's never said about you before. And it was to Tahani that the worst part was when she would leave a party during the last song and cry because her parents still didn't love her. Brutal. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah. And then she's like, oh, well, you would never leave a party before it's over. You would get on stage and accept the applause and adoration from your guests. And they're like, aha, so we have to stay to the end of the party. And um, the Blake Bortles calling Derek Bortles, we've got to get Derek involved. That Eleanor that you think you are good enough to deserve the good, the the middle place, that you should go where Mindy St. Clair is. And so that's when they know the middle place is the destination. Well, I think Eleanor's thing was, you are, oh, right, but you are exactly where you're supposed to be. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then Chidi's was, oh, under, I bet you're, you're we oh, you were under, you the, were the, under trolley. the trolley. Under the trolley. So I had this sermon that I tried to write every year for about a decade for Rosh Hashanah mm-hmm. about hope. And and every year I would try to write it, and every year I couldn't because I just couldn't arrive at a definition of hope that was satisfying to me. Because you know, as a rabbi, you go, you you talk to people who are sick and dying, and you know, hope can't possibly mean hang in there, you're going to get better. People are mm-hmm. not always or often are not going to get better, and I couldn't figure out what I was even trying to say. And I think because I was stuck on this idea that it was about the outcome or sort of a formula for a knowledge, you know, hope being the knowledge that things will turn out okay, and that's certainly not the case. And what I like about what you're doing is you were suggesting that this leap to faith is is not the f- final part of the process. You do make a decision and that opens you up to certain possibilities. It could have, you know, at somewhere along the way, Eleanor thought, well, I, I was wrong. It turns out I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And But just having, having opened it up, you know, it just gave the room for that things could turn out okay. Yeah. And, uh, whereas if they had, uh, all their other options were definitely going to turn out badly. The demons are demons. And um, so I like that I like that the leap of faith isn't sort of one leap, but maybe a series of things that sort of and it does it will then engage your brain and and uh, unless you're Jason who's unless you're Jason. Is, opinion is not <laughs> your intellectual development is not <laughs> <laughs> but I was going to agree with you well then it's a wonderful plan <laughs> you know That's like two votes for mine yeah. yes <laughs> yeah. So do you think the 1,200, in, in your metaphor of the Talmud as the 1,200 clues, you know, that hoping that we might pick up mm-hmm. um, some of them? I just I just love that. You know, a, a lot of people get one or two stories, parts of the, the Jewish tradition that become their go-tos. Maybe, I think for a lot of people, it's probably, it might be like Nakshon, jumping into the, into the river first, being the first person to go. The Midrash about the Exodus and uh, the sea not splitting until this one person, Nachshon, decided to, to go in all the way up to his neck before the sea actually split. Yeah. And that that's a great motivating 
bet you can give that yeah in sermons secular speeches every week somebody will be inspired by it right so sometimes you just get one story a person gets one story i think i think that jason is somebody who would find one story and he would lock in in it like he's he thinks a molotov cocktail solves every problem (laughs) so he you could see somebody finding one story from the jewish tradition and that's what they apply to all situations and it helps them a little bit but there's so many but if you go in and and i have not done this like into the talmud around the story of nakshon or or exodus you're going to find layers on layers and layers of like ways to look at that moment mm. and and everything can be zoomed out and zoomed back in and so that's what i think it is it's this ability to zoom out and make new connections reimagine the story from somebody else's perspective and then how do you apply it to modern life and that's part of what what we learn is it doesn't matter uh, and that's a little strong i i can't look at talmud as ancient history that doesn't matter i have to read those interpretations and then figure out how do they apply to my modern life like those are the 1200 clues are are what is still applicable to my life in 2022 and, and how can it help me make decisions? So this is a very different concept, I think, of the leap to faith than maybe mm-hmm. is is customarily understood. And I will say something which perhaps might be either, uh, might offend or maybe is a wrong characterization to some of our Christian listeners, mm-hmm. if there are any of you, because I sort of understood that at least in some forms of Christianity, I have the feeling that the leap of faith means like the Christian story is that there's something in the world that's fundamentally wrong and the jesus story is that there's no solution in the world there's a redemption that can only come from outside your faith is to give yourself to stop trying to be a human because a human is destined to fail and only by the grace of god you know totally do we get somewhere else which i know is not every version of christianity yeah Um, and i think there are forms of judaism that feel this way too uh, that paradoxically look at all the different things we do in, in halakha, in Jewish law, and say, if you just check off all these boxes and do these things, whether you understand them or not, that's your that's your ticket to redemption. And I, I certainly don't buy that either. And what you're describing is a leap into, here we go again with another universe. I've talked about this elsewhere as the uh, the platform nine and three quarters mm-hmm. thing from Harry Potter, which is if you're willing to hurl yourself at this thing, and you've got to have some faith that you're not going to hurt yourself when you hit that wall at the train station, then suddenly these other layers reveal themselves and are available to you and you're a part of this magical world, Which, but that's only the start. You have to learn how to harness that and how to use yeah. that. Right. In that sense, I think it's nice in this episode that all they win at the end is the possibility that they might escape from the bad place and maybe have an opening, but they still, as we'll learn the next couple episodes, they don't really have a clear idea how they're going to get to the good place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because going to Mindy St. Clair's, had they gone to the to Mindy's, was only going to buy them time and everyone knew where they were. And this it still just buys them time, but the demons are going to be confused about trying to find them. Mm. It doesn't get them, a portal doesn't immediately open to the good place. Although the humans at this point still expect that's what's going to happen. So when you look at the good place and you look at Michael or you look at Sean, for that matter, or Vicky, you know, or Janet, are you looking for analogies with divinity in some way? Uh, I don't think I'm looking. I'm not. I don't see them as being divine figures, although I think maybe of them, Janet is probably the closest because uh, she's 
you know, not a person, not a girl. Uh, <laughs> it's not skin, <laughs> right? Like she has access to the universe and time in an expansive way and knowledge in an expansive way and is able to bring it to a human level. So put on the spot, I would say Janet is probably the most, is the most divine of them. And that the demons are just kind of what our culture has, like from Dante and we're steeped in a literature and, and majority culture where demons, devils, hell is such a big idea. They are just the personification of that to me. So I feel like they are less divine, but I'll, I'll, I will I will give Janet a divine place. <laughs> I was just curious into it. Like I have this because I, I I have this sort of mechanistic at times view of the show where I'm trying to force it into the categories I want sure. to talk about. So I'm curious how other people see that. Um, I loved Janet's line about could could <laughs> could they talk more quietly while she's getting over her her magnet yes. hangover because I can <laughs> hear literally every sound in the universe. <laughs> And I have this thing about, I don't know, for Sean, his voice is so great uh, that he pulls off this, you know, incredible spoof of, on the mm-hmm. one hand, like, corporate manager type. And <laughs> He's fantastic. He's got an NPR background. You know, he's a radio guy before he was an improv actor. And he's got such a great radio voice and such a dry, oh, can't you tell I'm ecstatic? I thought yeah. you could tell. I'm emoting everything. <laughs> So I will say the part of the episode that grew on me is that because like in a way, every gag I saw coming, but I still kind of enjoyed it. Uh, you know, each thing is a bit of a callback, each of those mm-hmm. Sean things to something. Even like I <laughs> was lying, I was looking for exactly how he said it. You know, normally I would love when a man talks about a woman, t- tells a mm-hmm. woman that she's crazy. And, you know, like it's such a horrible thing yes. that, he, that he pulls off and uh, he, he is phenomenal. It's such good writing. It was such a clever writer's room. I haven't picked up Mike Shore's new book on philosophy. Have you read it yet? I start, I've started to. Okay. Because it, it is interesting when you when you listen to interviews with him, the writer's room wanted to make an introduction to philosophy academic course. Ultimately, it's philosophy 101, maybe 201, which is, you know, a nice way to use TV. I'm amazed at how they continue to be amazed at how they pulled this off and wove mm-hmm. enough of that in. And uh, I suppose the part of me that is definitely a cheaty was just so like hurt despite myself, you know, in the first scene in Michael's office when he's ridiculing cheaty for, you know, this stupid ethics stuff that you're mm-hmm. and, uh, boring and terrible or whatever is the name of Kierkegaard's book. And then, uh, and at the roast, you know, ethics, you know, and, I'm like, oh, you know, I know this is over the top and there's probably some twist to this, but I hate just I hate that in my ears because uh, I think that probes my deepest fear that these concepts aren't going to prove valuable. And in the end, like, as I say, Chidi was Chidi was not the one who won this episode and in mm-hmm. some ways is not the one who is winning this part of the season for the, the humans. And- He's not, but there's no getting to this place without all of his teaching. This is when the student or like a student athlete or when they say like the student has surpassed the teacher. This is sending your students out into the world and seeing how they do. Without his philosophy class and ethics class, they would not have survived. 
because they wouldn't have had the relationships or the framework to solve the clues. And I see what you mean, that it is a harder episode to pull out the stories of Teshuva or to pull ideas of the divine out. Uh, I think in part because there is so much that roast is so hurtful. And I think even more now, I know we're in a post-vaccine world, but I do think the couple years that we spent at home, you know, you're a pulpit rabbi trying to serve a congregation probably remotely and digitally or or just in so d- such different ways. I do think we all, well, we all didn't do anything. I got softer. <laughs> My, I broke down some cynical Gen X walls I had up. And so I think that roast hurt more this time around. I think mm-hmm. just because I'm like uh, maybe a softer, gentler person in 2022 than I was when the episode came out. I do think that was interesting to revisit in a post-vaccine time, just how much harder that hit. That is really perceptive, yeah. Because I think when I got past that in the episode and it got to really the last five minutes, I did enjoy myself mm-hmm. a lot. And I was noticing, actually, that Eleanor, who usually has a dig or two in at somebody or, or even a reference to some, you know, humiliation of somebody else or of herself mm-hmm. that she did in her life. There's really almost none of that. There's maybe one. It's much more Tahani knocking down Jason than, mm-hmm. than Eleanor criticizing anybody. So I, that's, that's a really interesting observation. So I want to ask you, Leah, is there anybody you would name as someone who has one of your earlier influences toward thinking about ethics or ethical philosophy? Rabbi Michael Zedek, who is the rabbi who supervised my conversion and is the rabbi emeritus of my synagogue, truly gave me the first Jewish tools I had to start thinking about, like, how does decision making change from a Jewish perspective? So I do think, you know, Rabbi Zedek is the rabbi of my heart. He made such a difference in my life. So I'm really grateful to him. Well, Leah Jones, thank you so much for having this conversation together. This was wonderful. I'm glad you gave me a reason to revisit The Good Place and this episode in particular. It was good to to watch the arc. I watched like three episodes last night to get prepared. So I appreciate that. And that's all for this installment of Tove. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll tell other people to look for us on their favorite podcast apps or at tovegoodplace.com. That's where you can find show notes. This time we don't have any Jewish texts to offer, but you can see a few links about Kierkegaard that relate to Torah in this episode. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at tovegoodplace. You can hear more of Leah Jones on her podcasts, Finding Favorites with Leah Jones, and Candy Chat Chicago. She's on Twitter, at Chicago Leah, and at Finding Faves Pod, F-A-V-S in the middle there. You can find me, John Spirosavet, at RabbiJS3, or on my blog and website, RabbiJohn.net. Once again, thank you for making time for Tove. And to put a spin on the words of Mark Evan Jackson, who plays Sean, at the end of the official Good Place podcast, now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.